My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hey everyone, on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, we welcome author, spoken word artist, and creative, Humble the Poet. Stay tuned. You know, wrapping up the year is hard work. Locking in the reflection on the year gone by and the optimism for the year ahead, for ourselves and in the company of others, takes harmonized energy, effort, and emotion. And speaking of emotional, thank you for listening to this, for sharing it with your friends and family, for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and for following on social media at Dr. Abhaydarndika. So our emotions are our innate neurophysiologic states, and they synchronize with our minute-by-minute dashboard of behaviors and ongoing survival. They're often reactionary or responsive and often govern our actions. And somewhere in that complex system, both hidden and equally staring us right in the face, is love, usually manifesting with some combination of expression and outcome. It's an active force, and we feel it, we share it, we sometimes accept it, and we also may have a hard time holding on to it. Again, that whole issue of harmonizing energy, effort, and emotion for ourselves and for others. And so in thinking of this, it was terrific to share a conversation with Gunwar Singh, also known as Humble the Poet, and author of the new book, How to Be Loved. Gunwar was born and raised in Toronto, was a school teacher for many years before turning his creative energy as Humble the Poet to spoken word, hip hop, design, and writing. His work and expression traverse many intersections, whether writing the best-selling book Unlearn with lessons and stories of self-empowerment, or directing videos, or public speaking, or making music. Humble the Poet is on a beautiful quest to unearth questions and make people think more deeply about themselves and the world around them. Now, interestingly, the full title of his newest book offering is How to Be Loved, Simple Truths for Going Easier on Yourself, Embracing Imperfection, and Loving Your Way to a Better Life. We had a chance to chat about some of these simple truths, about the book, about salty potato chips, about his teaching experiences, and about his creativity and practice of self-learning. So being curious of it all and mildly clever myself, I first wanted to find out in writing his new book what he perhaps had to unlearn. I mean, the entire book is my journey of unlearning everything around love. I think probably the the biggest one is the reminder that love is a verb way more than it's a noun. So love isn't mm-hmm. something you acquire. Love isn't something you earn. Love isn't something you win. You know, love is something you do. It's something that you serve. It's something that you practice. It's something that you can reflect upon. I think that was probably the biggest one. And then starting to realize that all the things that we think are love are, are not actually love. They're they're fast food bootleg versions of it. The attention, the control, the power, the validation, the admiration, the success, the clout. Um, all of those things that we kind of, you know, require on some capacity from a social perspective um, have become kind of things we thirst for as adults. And we have plenty of systems built in right now for us to pursue them, you know, in a society where buy things, be happy. It's kind of the main religion. 
Did, did you find that there were any facilitators to help you go through that process? Did you have any, you know, we always deal with guides or coaches and sometimes from very unexpected places, but in that same un- unlearning process you just described, did, did you have any assists? I mean, yeah. I mean, every, every X in my life um, and also the bees, you know, the, the, this book was inspired by, by a, an unsuccessful engagement. And, and I talk about that story in the book, but also, you know, I have a friend, uh, Aubrey Marcus, who's got a, he's got a popular podcast and, um, you know, having a two hour conversation with him, um, about everything from, um, you know, polyamory all the way on to, you know, the, the challenges of, of having relationships and, and watching him in his most radical honesty, explore that, um, and open me to ideas I had never considered before. So, um, yeah. And a lot of books, you know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of online yeah. lectures, a lot of books, a lot of audio books. I read every philosopher I could read who spoke about love, every psychologist, every self love guru, every dating coach. I read them all to, in the pursuit of trying to find that common thread to realize more love in our lives. What was the ignition for this overall? I mean, was this a sort of, hey, you've been thinking about this for a long time, or was there a, a sort of aha moment, a spark, if you will? I mean, I was, I was, in, a, I was in a relationship that I, that I was trying to evolve to the next level, hmm. and um, there were clear problems between us that um, struggling to resolve. And I think I had originally recognized that I was struggling in the world of empathy, I yeah. think, you know, I was kind of raised in an environment where vulnerability was seen as weakness. So I kind of overly uh, corrected and became very self-regulated and uh, wasn't too strong in the world of co-regulation, which I think is essential uh, to have a healthy relationship with another human being. Um, so that that really started it. I wanted to be better at the at the game of love. That that journey in itself led me to to realize that I was probably in a situation I shouldn't have been in, but that w- that was definitely the catalyst. And, yeah. um, and 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 that's the thing with the book. This isn't a book to help you find your life partner. This is a book to help you have a deeper understanding of what it means to experience love. And that may motivate you to find a life partner. That may motivate you to end the current one you have. Um, you know, it's all about where the love can come from and how to realize it. Did you find that in the process of doing so and sort of like that discovery, whether it's for, again, uh, relationships outside or, you know, amorous relationship, but did you find that some of those lessons you were finding were helping you in other sort of platonic relationships, relationship with your family, with colleagues and things like that? Yeah, I think the art of the relationship is no different. You know, yeah. I think the intensity and the stakes are higher, but uh, our interpersonal relationships, uh, whether it be family, friends, romantic, work, people you you're sharing the subway with are all kind of the same and you know they're most successful when we realize we're all in it together the most successful when we can be more curious and judgmental and i think from that standpoint um it definitely did and and the book itself is broken up into three sections you know the first section is called wtf is love the second section is love for self and the final section is love for others so i don't have a specific section on romantic love it's more so um all of, all of these insights will help you with your grandkids. It'll help you with your siblings. It'll help you with 
your annoying coworker who you share a cubicle with. It can help you with all of that because at the end of the day, love is a constant, it's a constant force existing in our lives. And it's more so that we put a lot on top to kind of bury it. And instead of trying to do new things to realize it, it's really about clearing away the old stuff. I was going to ask you, what, why do you think we have so much buried on top of that? Why do we shove it down? Why, and for that matter, why, why do you think we need reminders so frequently that, you know, love is so universal. It's a great guide wire for living. Um, I, th- I think it's the same. I, I, I kind of liken it to food. You know, 5,000 years ago, there was simple, nutritious, a few options of food, and, and, and it did the job. Um, and now we have, you know, much quicker, cheaper, faster options of food that, that lack nutrition, but have all the convenience um, or easily accessible and get the job done for the type of lifestyle that this world has become, mm. um, which is, you know, hyperproductive you know, grow, 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 work, 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 do, do, do. So I think it's the same thing um, in the world of love. There's a, there's a nutritious love that is a lot slower, a lot more nutritious, requires labor, requires sacrifice, requires work. But then, you know, we have all these hyper-flavored bootleg versions of love, like salty potato chips that are completely addictive and none of us are immune to it those are constantly dangled in front of us as incentives to participate in the economies that we're in. And, you know, you have to make somebody feel like they're lacking in order to sell them something. Yeah. You know, whether it goes back to Edward Bernays, the emotional marketing campaigns that he did back in the days, uh, up to, you know, whether it's selling makeup now or whether it's selling a car or a Gucci sure. belt or the new iPhone, you know, people aren't buying iPhones because they need phones. They're buying iPhones to like maintain a level of, of status and, 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 and being up to date because, you know, God forbid you have an iPhone 10 or whatever. And at the same time, you know, as children, you know, while our brains are still formulating and, and, and forming, you know, we can only often see things from a dualistic perspective. Yeah. You know, we don't, you know, it's really black and white. It's actually black and white for, for our brains. And we make a lot of really important socialized decisions at those ages with that black and white thinking. And then as our brains become more complex and we can see the gray in between, we don't really update our software and update our choices. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of it as well. I think one of the big things that I really noticed is how much we blame ourselves for external bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's a, we internalize it and we make coping mechanisms and adjust accordingly when really half the time it's not our fault. It's, you know, the adults that raised us aren't perfect and they might've had a bad day, but, you know, as being the center of the universe children that we were, we thought it was about us and we adjusted our behavior and our strategies towards life accordingly and never took the time to revisit that. As you grow and mature and develop and you've gone on this journey, have, have you found it easier, in fact, to pay attention to the grays, to prioritize that as part of your storytelling a little bit? easier no um you know this maybe better is is it is it is oh it more is it more effective yeah it is, it is more effective and as i as i practice it i I'm, I'm more cognizant of it definitely yeah um you know but there's still a big practice of shortening my re- reaction time so sure. i can i can lengthen my response time and what i'm noticing and even now with certain friends i'm helping out there's this big narrative of how it should be versus how it is and it's like you know i shouldn't need to look at my phone 
I shouldn't need to eat junk food, even if it's, you know, and, and I'm more of like, no, like, obviously you shouldn't need to eat junk food, but the solution still is not having it in the house. It's not relying on the discipline, you know? So it's like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't need to have emotional responses and I should have much, much more logical reactions. So I shouldn't have emotional reactions and have much more logical responses, but we will always have an emotional reaction first. And the question is how quickly can we address that? Yeah. breeze through it, do something before we can actually have our logical uh, response. I was going to say, so if I, if I equate the potato chip to the anger and agitation and anxiety that's thrown upon us, you know, throughout yeah. our, our society, how do, how do I not have the potato chip in my house then? Yeah, that's that. Well, so I think the first step is to acknowledge that you are not more powerful than the potato chip. Like you're not yeah. more powerful than social media. Like these are companies owned by billionaires, devoting billions of dollars and hiring the smartest people in the world to, to get you sucked into their rabbit hole. Yeah. You are not the exception to the rule. So, you know, the issue here is just, it's the same with the potato chip. It's like, you can't just have one. So you don't start and you don't rely on discipline. If you know that, you know, there's proximity matters. They've done studies where they put in candy jars in the middle of offices and watch them empty out. And they've hidden them in the corner of the office and no one touches them. They don't know they're there. Yeah. And it's, it's the same thing. I, I had a big sugar craving last night. I, I have no sugar in my, my place. Yeah. You know, not to say that I couldn't have gone out and chased some sugar, but that one additional uh, road bump, you know, sure. worked in my favor. And we, have to, we're, we're, we are our parents. You know, we, yeah. have to be, we have to raise ourselves now. So for me, I think it's, it's really about being realistic that this is not discipline and self-strength and, and all of this and you know trying to be strong it's just really knowing your limitations and mm -hmm. adjusting and creating an environment accordingly i love this idea of you know abandoning the potato chips of anxiety and anger and agitation in my house but in fact amplifying and creating spaces where it's only the only option is love then yeah and and, and i think that's what it is too like, you know there's a, there's a great definition by Naval Ravikant of, you know, love, love is what's left when all other emotions cease to exist. Sure. Yep. And um, I like that. I love, I love this concept of love being the default versus it being, you know, something supreme to everything else. And it's like, no, all these other emotions are extremely important, especially from an evolutionary stance. You know, the, the vast majority of emotions on the emotional wheel would be categorized as, as negative, but that's because negative emotions keep you alive. Yeah. You know, we don't learn, we don't learn when we're happy and you can't kill a meal when you're in a good mood. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. we, we have these negative emotions for a purpose and that, that paranoia served a purpose. All of these things served a purpose for the world that us as a species were living in for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And this modern version of life that we have isn't that old. And our bio, our biology is, will not be catching up anytime soon to that, you know, yeah, very from, true. from any standpoint. Yeah. So it's, you know, we're not even like our eyes aren't even primed to see some of the colors that, you know, these yellows and these reds, they don't exist in nature. We're not yeah. primed to be seeing them and they impact us. So these flavors, these sounds, these emotions, this, this hyper reality that we've, we've now created in our entertainment industry, this, this is all potato chips and it's all completely addictive. It's a big salt rock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, from that standpoint, it's, it's not, as I said, it's just recognizing that like, I got to reduce my instances of being around this stuff yeah. because it will devour me. It is undefeated. 
Yeah. I am not stronger than this. And that's okay. This isn't a weakness. Well, and like acknowledging that, right? Giving yourself the licensure to say like, hey, look, these are forces that are bigger than you and ensuring, in fact, that that you're recognizing that very well. Completely. You know, as a performer for you, was the experience of narrating this, obviously, you know, in a different medium now as an author, were there certain elements of empathy and storytelling as a spoken word artist or a rap artist that directly aided you in sort of crafting this as a as a written narrative? Um, I I try to I try to write like I speak, and there were there were certain you know instances with the with the editing where I wasn't using the correct dictionary definition on the word, but you know there's there's certain words that we we that are normal in conversation that we're completely using incorrectly. And uh, I think I think one of them was uh, marinate. So, you know, marinate on that idea. You know, you can't marinate on an idea. You can ruminate. Yeah. You can marinate in an idea. But, you know, the the grammar police, for me, the, the, the connection of, of having bad grammar and sounding like a normal human being having a conversation right. is much more important than, than appeasing the laws of grammar yeah. from like, you know, 200 years ago or whatever. Right. So I think from that, that standpoint, it's something that I, I definitely think about. And, you know, I have rules of, you know, no words bigger than mayonnaise. When I yeah. write. And I was an elementary school teacher. So I, I always, it's about packaging this to, to speak to everybody's inner child. Um, and then, you know, and, and working in music, I have a lot of experience in front of the microphone. So in terms of recording it, there's definitely a process of, of going through it. And the way this book is set up is this book is has six love stories. The the bookends of each section are love stories. Um, they're non-traditional love stories in every capacity, um, but they're love stories nonetheless. And I waited to read those at the end because they're so emotional. So yeah. like the, the meat and potatoes of the book are, are philosophies, observations, ruminations, yeah. and all of that, and insights. But the, the love stories are the much more emotional ones. And I knew that those would be the toughest to get through. So I, we waited till the very end of the recording process to go through those. And um, for anyone who listens to the audiobook, the first chapter, I barely get through it. And we didn't right. edit that in any capacity. We probably just edited it for the long gaps. But you're going to hear the sniffs and sniffles. You'll hear the tears. It was, it was a heavy thing. And, and, and it was the same thing with my last audiobook. I had chapters about my, my last dog passing away. And yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't a world where I, where I would have been able to read that chapter completely without you know, getting emotional. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. No, not at all. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Humble the Poet. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with author, spoken word artist, and creative, Humble the Poet. You know, the, the energy that you get when you're doing a performance live and someone's feeling it and it's palpable, there's, there's a sense of that shared experience, whether it's emotion, it's excitement, any of the sort of spectrum of different kind of feelings that you might have. When someone's reading your work now, 
are you hoping that the reactions are somewhat the same or is it more of a discovery? Like, hey, I hope there's new emotions or new reactions that people get. Um, I think at this point, um, I've really made peace with the fact that I'm 51% of this journey in this conversation. Yeah. Um, and the second the book is out of my hands, it's out of my hands. And, yeah. You know, the longer you spend on this earth, the more you realize that people can only meet you as far as they've gone. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm talking about heartbreak to somebody who's never experienced heartbreak, there's, there's no, it's, it's not my business whether they get it or not. Sure. Um, or, you know, I, I have a chapter in here about a, an ex-girlfriend talking to me about kind of, you know, playfully chastising me about how, how dare I write a book about love when I don't have children. And, you know, that in itself, I think it's going to be a really interesting one. And I, and I've heard that before from, you know, parents of some of my friends being like, you write these books and you don't have kids. And I think there's, there's a whole different perspective that comes from that, which I'm not lost on, Yeah. but I can only write a book from where I'm at. So I think, you know, there can be people who have contexts that I don't, that are yeah. going to connect with us in a different way. And there can be people who definitely have contexts that, that I do, you know, yeah. because they might be younger or what have you. So I think from that standpoint, it's going to be, it, 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 so it, it's, it's less for me to concern myself with. I think for me, I focus on the accessibility and the digestibility of the words. Does that motivate you any differently when when you you are cognizant of knowing that you you're relating to a situation in a different way, whether it's not as a parent or you've not gone through a situation like that, but perhaps your your motivation is that like, look, I'm de- developing a different empathy for this. Yeah, in a way, because I think I think my value add, like my actual, what do I bring to the table is that I put words together, and, and yeah. that's my that's my you know. 20,000 hours of labor. I've done that. Um, I can confidently say I, I, I do that better than the average. And your passion. Yeah. My passion, my obsession, and 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 the thing I put the time into. You know, yeah. I, I can't, you know, I can't build a computer. I can't fix a toilet. You know, I can't swim. I can't do those things. You know, there's things I can't do and there's things I can't do. What yeah. I can do is put words together. That's my contribution in, the, in this world. Right. Um, and taking ideas that are very, have been very, very popularly misconstrued and trying to bring them back to their essence and allowing people to see the blind spots in it or helping people find the, the reasons we believe the things we believe. You know, in this book, I talk about the sources of the knight in shining armor and the, and the, the damsel in distress, helping people see that history and where it actually came from and realizing like, wait a minute, this informs so much of my understanding of what love is. Sure. I think that's an important job for me to do. You know, I, I do think, from that perspective, my goal always is just to have people feeling, wow, I never looked at it that way. And with this book specifically, because it was written over the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of time, like a lot of empty space and time and a lot of internal reflection because... Some rumination, maybe? Or... Yes, adequate to, to, <laughs> to, to put it properly, a lot of rumination. Right. Um, but then also, like, I just, I, I remember, you know, and it's also one of those things where it's like, you know, if you went to the gym for six months and never looked in the mirror, and then one day you look in the mirror, like, oh, I can see the difference. And there was a moment of a friend, a very intelligent friend of mine coming over and, you know, kind of playfully teasing me, like, you know, you're dumbass and know nothing about love. Why are you writing a book about love? And then we kind of going through the, like, us kind of having a verbal spar. Yeah. And it being clear to both him and me that I definitely know my stuff now. Yeah. So it's like, you know, like I'm not claiming to be an expert on love. I'm claiming to be the guy who read more books, did the research, and now I'm sharing my notes. 
That's all I'm doing. Yeah. I'm sharing my. I'm not a love guru. I'm, I'm just sharing my notes, and I've taken way more notes than the average person on the subject. <laughs> right. Let me ask you something because you we you started or you you mentioned that you were an elementary school teacher. I mean, you know, in some ways you had a different role in that area, but yet your your messaging that the way that you interacted with very in a formative way for people young young people particularly. Do you ever miss that elementary school life? You know, kids calling you Mr. Singh, um, or at least the growth and even in some ways the seva that being a teacher offered. No, <laughs> uh, I think I think I, th- I think definitely there is a uh, there's a lot of a lot of PR being sold to teachers about the, the beauty of that job and the seva mm-hmm. and the and the passion and all of that. I think, um, and I was and I was a teacher in Canada, where, you know, where the school system even isn't as underserved as it as it sure. is out here in the states. Yeah, but um, no, I think it's it's, it's outdated. Is extremely outdated. Um, I think the pandemic kind of lifted the the veil of that. That this has kind of become yeah. uh, modern babysitting for those who have to be plugged into a outdated nine to five work schedule. Are there elements of of that role that, especially, kind of like the dialogue or the discussion with kids in that in that arena? Being in a room with kids, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's the thing. Is like being in a room with kids. Yeah, is 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 epic and it's awesome. Yeah, you know, especially after a month of me, you know, kind of laying the groundwork of, of our relationship. And I was very cognizant of, uh, you know, being proactive instead of reactive. So I wasn't a teacher. You know, I was a teacher that really made expectations super clear for yeah. them to understand. So very rarely did I ever get upset. Because I was never reacting to anything, yeah. And every, you know, everything was kind of clear. So from that standpoint, um, it was effective. Um, it's not enough time. Yeah, you're not spending enough time with these kids. Like it's it's ten months, and then they're you know, so they're not they're not these projects that 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 you think that you can see a lot of growth in. Yeah. Um, and you're also you know, it is also just a constant reminder of of the system. You know, I had I, I taught for six years and every child I had was a child of an immigrant or an immigrant themselves. I never had a Caucasian student. Yeah. Um, and most of the parents were heavily educated individuals from other countries who were not allowed to presently use their education to better themselves. So sure. I had, you know, engineers working at gas stations or coffee shops and yeah. teachers who had to be my my volunteers or principals. Mm-hmm from India right. who had to be my volunteers to get some volunteer hours so they can apply for teacher college and start all over. And I think it was a constant reminder of, of kind of the inequities of, of how the government was treating, you know, the people in, in marginalized communities. So from that standpoint, there was a lot of, it, it kind of, it really kind of, you know what it was? I think the idealisms of being a student in school, mm. all of that was shed by being a teacher in school <laughs> yeah. and, you know, having, I had at one year I had thirty five students and only twenty eight code books, you know. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm in Toronto in the winter, right? You know, right. and so it's like, you know, you're you're trying to wrap your head around this, and you started to realize how much they. A really good teacher, a really good teacher. Never sees a challenge and, and blames the circumstances. Like if the, if a kid doesn't get it, the teacher asks himself, "What am I doing wrong?" Yeah. But then just certain, certain like you know. I'm not doing anything wrong if I don't have enough co-hooks in my classroom. 
yeah. the average teacher will still take make it their responsibility, pay pay money out of their pocket to address that problem. So I think I started to really start seeing that exploitation of it. And also, it, it didn't hurt that like my union boss was my next door neighbor in, in the classroom. So you know, and right. and I and I had already come from a, a world of social justice. So she was really yeah. putting it in my head, like, look, you know, don't 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 break your back for for this because they they rely on you going the extra mile because and that lets them cut corners. You know, they 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 ask the parents for extra money because they 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 refuse to pay for the for the field trips. Yeah. So you started to see that. And, you know, you started to realize how that that in combination with just the challenges that the kids were going through in their family lives were both setting them setting them up to fail. Did that sense of or that realization of like, look, I'm, I'm witnessing firsthand these inequities, the uh, injustices or even just the, the pain of doing this were in some ways those actually accelerators for you to really now pursue the passion of spoken word and your and and really sort of embark on that journey meaning that like hey that that experience in fact yes you know was filled with all the things that were so fraught in the teaching business as you mentioned but without it perhaps it wouldn't have necessarily fueled the rest of of your journey yeah no 1000% i mean I can pinpoint the moment i became humble the poet it was yeah. sitting in a room full of young professionals who were trying to get involved in um, social issues and, and help the community out and uh, you know somebody making a statement like the kids don't listen and then me saying no no it's, you don't know how to speak to the kids and that was the birth of home of the poet which was yeah. recognizing that i knew how to communicate in a way that other people didn't because even when for a lot of people who know better there's a there's a this kind of an intellectual pretentiousness yeah. to them and they don't understand cognitive ability is, is genetic you know, it's, it's, it's very little you can do to impact your IQ and you can understand deep concepts or you can, you know, use, you know, have a triple digit IQ or something that's not available to everybody. So when people don't live like you or, or believe like you or, or understand concepts like you, that's not their feeling. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, so, and I was recognizing that, you know, I was in a room full of doctors and lawyers and stuff and they were just talking about how, you know, these ghetto kids don't get it. And I was like, no, you don't get it. Right. Because you, you know, you and, and, and I understand that from, you know, even in my house, like the cognitive abilities, like, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm, I'm no way, shape or form the smartest person in my, my own family. And it's like so you assume everyone's like that. And then when you go into the real world, you realize, like, oh, no, there's there's definitely intellectual diversity. Yeah. So and it's framework. Yeah, it's a framework. Yeah. And, and, and I think that that in itself was, was the first step to me being like, OK, like, let me package things that I feel are important. Yeah. And it's always been this me loving to learn and, and, and becoming a teacher was wanting a job where no two days would feel the same. Yeah. You could do it for 30 years and still say you haven't seen it all. So from that standpoint, it was really priming me to, to communicate and, and, and simplify ideas and make heavy ideas feel lighter because that's exactly what you're doing for students. Yep. But on top of that, you know, I had always grown up in a world of social issues and, and, and social justice. So that primed me and then as i started talking about important ideas it was always about packaging it in a way that any, everybody can understand it so that was definitely there and then on top of that kind of as i settled into the job realizing that the actual job itself you know the skills required to be an elementary school teacher they weren't heavily academic they were a lot of uh, they were soft skills which I, which are extremely important you know cooperation adaptability patience Yep. Uh, you know, uh, 
planning, all of these things, which are, which are, you know, completely skills that can, can have a massive impact on, on an individual's net worth, but are not focused on in education. You, I heard you once say that, that when we take responsibility, that we have power and, yeah. and where do we, I mean, now from your vantage point, where do we as a community of say North American, South Asians, or for that matter, any community, where, where do we need to take more responsibility in order to further empower ourselves? Um, we, we, we need to focus on, our, on, on, on if, we're, if we're talking about our kids, their EQ. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, but also like soft skills, like, as I, like you're a medical professional, right? You finish med school and then you get into rotations and then you get into residence, right? By rotations, academically, you are in a, everyone in the room with you has the same grades. You know, they've already filtered out everybody else. By residency, it's, it's, it's only the cream of the crop, right? So at this point, you know, when you're sitting down with potential heads of, of, of hospitals and stuff like that, there is a po- point of them simply thinking like, well, who do I want to see every day? Yeah. You know, the qualifications, everyone in every resume on my desk is qualified. Yeah. At this point, who do I want to see every day? Who, who do I just, who will I look forward to seeing? Who do I want to go to the Christmas party? Who do I want to see at the, 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 the hospital Christmas party or go to, go to the bar with after? Like, and even <laughs> in, in my world of entertainment, like my likability has taken me way farther than my talents. Yeah. Do you, so do we not pay enough respect to those skills and pay far more attention to the sort of metrics of academia, if you will? I think as children, of, as children of immigrants, we definitely don't. And I think it's just, I think it's just about information. I think it's just yeah. this outdated idea of creating these safe and secure opportunities. There's very few ways left uh, to, to contribute to the economy and to make a living that require formal, formal schooling. Yeah. You know, I think if, uh, I forgot the way somebody put it, if you're building something or if you're fixing something, you need to go to school, mm. you know, yeah. everything else is just learn, learning. Like I didn't need to go to school to be a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I didn't learn anything in teacher's college. I learned everything my first year being thrown into the, in, into the wolves. You as a medical professional should definitely go to school. You know, you're fixing, you're fixing and building. It's a, it's a very different situation, you know, but as a, I'm a professional writer now, I didn't have to go to school for that. Photographers don't have to go to school, you know, right. maybe mechanical engineers do. People creating our skys- skyscrapers do. People building our bridges do. But, you know, people who are designing the interiors of these buildings don't. Yeah. And I think from that standpoint, recognizing that there are more transferable skills to help you make a living and also the, the the real safety and security at this point is your adaptability and and, and that's going to probably 100%. come from being an entrepreneur yeah more than it is being somebody who have gotten so used to a salary job that you've allocated every dollar from that salary into your bills that when shit hits the fan you have no idea what to do well and and I think the uh, the apprenticeship in life of social relatability and adaptation and being flexible and how do you grow relationships? I mean, yeah. we don't get enough apprenticeship of, of that. And these are on the report card. These are actually on the report card, but they're at the bottom. 
and you know they're 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 not prioritized over the academics yeah and it's like i mean at this point how many extremely extremely successful people come from worlds where they're, they're academic you know yeah. and, and 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 i think that's just an important concept to explore whereas you know and again i don't have children so i don't want to speak on that but as a, as, a, as a professional educator for yeah. many many years it's literally if you make the non-negotiable with your child that laziness is not acceptable you have the freedom to to do almost anything you want but you don't get to half-ass any of it yeah you know i think that's setting them up for success dramatically more than the grade yeah it's not yeah. celebrating the a if yeah. you know that they, it was just easy and it's not it's not diminishing the c if you know they gave it 110 percent Totally. You know, you actually know that and you're really focused on getting them to be honest and self-aware about their energy and their efforts. So they know that, listen, whatever I do, I have to give it my all yeah. for long periods of time, despite the monotony, despite the repetition. Yeah. Like you're, you're actually setting up an individual to be successful and, and for life. And then from a pragmatic standpoint, probably coding. You know, yeah. if you want to have superpower in this world, learn Start how to code. Start coding, right? Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Humble the Poet. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Sean J. Chandran, founder of Crossover Basketball and Scholars Academy. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abe Dandaka. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with author, spoken word artist, and creative, Humble the Poet. You know, and I, I've been thinking a lot about those messages or those stories or those pockets where we're just not magnifying it enough. It's voiceless. It's, it's marginalized whether they're ideas, whether they're stories, whether they're people. Um, what do you think are some of those pockets or corners or areas of our shared experience that need more amplifying? Like certainly like the capacity to build love and self-love, certainly the capacity to value and prioritize hard work and anti-laziness as you, as you talked about. What, what are some of those other areas now that, that we really should be focusing on a lot more? Um, I think cooperation. I think, you know, your, the ability to, to coexist with anybody despite your differences. Yeah. Um, you know, that was the thing as a teacher, you know, I'd put them in groups and be like, I don't like so-and-so. I'm like, well, in life, you'll be around a lot of people you don't enjoy. Yeah. And if you can still figure it out with them, you'll, you know, this is going to definitely make you successful. Yeah. Um, and I think that is, is an extremely important uh, skill set. I think communication, Yeah. The ability, you know, I think a, a lot of, um, I mean, schoolyard violence is coming from an inability to communicate. You know, yeah. they they have limited tools and they get frustrated and throw a punch. But, um, you know, your ability to put words together, you know, makes you an extremely effective person. And, um, you know, it makes you, it makes you dangerous as well. It puts you in a situation to establish boundaries. It puts you in a situation to teach people how to be around you. It puts you in a situation to help other people 
understand their own selves and their own thoughts, which offers value to them. And the moment you offer value to anybody else, that's that's the moment you'll be provided with resources to continue doing so. So I'm listening to your way that you express yourself as a you know master communicator, someone who I hope also cooperates with others, and you know <laughs> you get that you get those skills. I'm curious about one thing. It's sort of a weird but playful question. I mean, as you're saying all this, I'm wondering, as a poet, as a creator, as a communicator, do you ever do you ever dream? in spoken word do you ever in silence have some of these kind of serendipitous moments come at you um i definitely have lines i definitely have random lines coming to me little opening lines and that's usually what you know starts a poem or or, or a song or something like that line yeah. comes in it, in it, and it and it festers within me um i, I don't think i've ever dreamed uh, anything poetic but definitely hearing people speak and then also even just hearing stories. Sometimes people say things that I find like epic and I'll take that and like completely stretch it out. And I think that's kind of, you know, you hear a 10,000 foot idea and you want to zoom it into the 5,000 feet and then zoom it into the 1,000, zoom it into the 100 feet, and zoom yeah. it into the five feet. So definitely that, that happens quite a bit. And, and now I'm, I'm also involved in TV and film writing. So that's, you know, I, I, I only try to write real stories and mm. a lot of these stories are just coming from people I know, my own experiences, and you start to realize like how interesting life really is. And then also like living out here now in, in, in Los Angeles, you also start to realize how, you know, very little comes from people's imaginations. It's actually like real life. Like you start to meet the characters. You're like, holy yeah. crap. Like yeah. these people weren't playing a character on TV. They're actually they're that, it. yeah, they're that eccentric. They're that <laughs> unique. And that's a whole other trip when you start to think think about how everyone is 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 absorbing and 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 and, and, and contributing to life from such different perspectives. Sure, and it's just yeah, it's such a it's mind blowing to think about. Well, and as you continue to grow and mature in your own artistic journey, and you know you're doing this now in Los Angeles, how do you? I'm curious how you balance stillness and peace and sort of the idea of being content with almost the sort of restless energy and excitement that it takes to be creative or, or can you be creative with both? Does it diminish at all achievement if you spend time and energy both pausing in that contentness? I mean, I think, I think it's definitely redefining the definition of achievement first and foremost, you know, yeah. I think, um, you know, when I wrote this book, for example, I started by saying, okay, a thousand words a day. And then if you got the thousand words done, that was an achievement. And then I was, you know, in, 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 in the vein of self-awareness, seeing myself subconsciously push to get to the thousand words and that having a negative impact on the quality of the work. So then I changed it to one hour uninterrupted writing, whether I wrote down one word or 1,000 words or 10,000 words in that hour. And that became a lot more authentic because at this point it was like, look, we are not doing anything else. We are yeah. just writing we're not looking at our phone. We're not switching whatever. And that allowed me a daily accomplishment, you know, and that, you know, that added up. So, you know, this book, How to Be Loved, is a 60, I think it was 60, 70,000. They wanted 60,000. I wrote 140. So, you know, I wrote a lot. Yeah. And then the process of, of bringing it down, you know, which is I'm, I'm really proud of because it allows, you know, yeah. what's left after the cutting room floor. Like right. this is... It's, it's, it's really, really good. And I just finished the audio book. So I was just like, oh, I'm, I, I was very impressed. And I'm my biggest critic. 
you know, I think redefining success from that standpoint, yeah. I think is important. And I think just in general, being cognizant of how I, like everybody else, probably have an underregulated reward center right now. Yeah. And I'm trying to address it. So yeah. I'm recognizing that TV, video games, my phone, music, all of these are, you know, contributing to to my my over addiction to dopamine. Uh, and quick fixes and the the art of doing nothing is, is is eliciting a lot of anxiety because you're going through dopamine withdrawal. So I'm trying I'm trying to mellow that out. So like you know I went for a hike yesterday with no headphones or nothing, you yeah. know, no access phone, just walking and staring at natural colors and hearing natural sounds and just being left with my thoughts and allowing my thoughts to kind of do what they do and it's kind of like clearing out my inbox. But I'm, yeah, I'm very cognizant of it and how, and realizing that I'm aware of it and how most people aren't. And that's hard, right? I mean, it's hard to stop the chase. Potato chips. Yeah, it's yeah, the same thing. That's yeah, right. It's, hard, hard to not have the potato chips inside. I, I read that you once said reputations are prisons, so fuck them. Yeah. And, and in the end, is that sort of the ultimate mantra for, for self-love? Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I, there's a story in the book. A friend of mine, Marquis, he's a he's a he's a retired NFL player. And yeah. um, in the story, there's a you know I went to a and I, I do I do ice baths you know and I went to an ice bath retreat that one of his doctors was doing. And there was a moment where everyone the first day everyone was getting in the ice. It was like you know we're in the mountains in Utah, and there's little kiddie pools full of ice water, and everybody's yeah. getting in. And then Marquis said, "No, I'm not getting in." And then, you know, people are kindly trying to uh, reassure him that it's okay. You know, it'll be okay. And he's like, no, I've done this before. I'm just not going in today. Yeah. And um, it was really interesting because his answer was just no. And it wasn't to prove or not prove anything to anybody. He didn't care if people understood why. And then the irony of it was everybody did their, you know, did the ice bath for five minutes, whatever, got out and it went inside. And there was one person who was afraid of going in. And then Marquis said, okay, I'll go in with you if you're too scared to go in. And then this is after everyone left. He went in with this individual. Um, so the interesting thing was like he had no desire and motivation to prove himself to anybody, sure. but he did have a desire to serve. So he went in, his only motivation to go into ice was service. Um, and that was the only way to get him in the ice. And he didn't right. care that people saw and I think, you know, that idea of these reputations, because the reputations go both ways, positive and negative. Sure. Yeah. And I I found that we don't realize how damaging compliments can be just as damaging as, as, as insults. Yeah. You know, especially when they come from somebody you care about. And I've had that where, you know, I had somebody constant, especially here in L.A., people in L.A. carry a lot of anxiety around what other people think. And I had somebody introduce me to a room full of celebrities as, hey, this is humble. He figured it out. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. And then all of a sudden you start to subconsciously, I have to now act like I don't care what anybody thinks. <laughs> right. But obviously I care what other people think. <laughs> yeah. But they said that and that made me look super cool. And everyone yeah. was like, wow. You know what I mean? Right. Like right. celebrities that I admire are like, wow, how did you do it? What's yeah. your secret? And, you sure. know, and I'm sitting there like, I don't even know where they got that from. You know. And does that mindset take depth and patience and practice 
to be to be able to realize. I mean, like anything else, it's sort of like an it's a stepwise journey. There's going to be steps forward, steps backward, and whatnot. Yeah, I, I I think the I think the practice creates the depth. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like you're you're chipping away or you're digging away, and I think the depth comes from that. But I mean, we only the things that we we get that we do well are things that we practice. Yeah. It's just repetition. The more you know, it's whatever you want to do you don't you don't say like i suck at being self-aware it's really i suck at being self-aware yet you know for now for right for today yeah yeah you know obviously the more fun you can have in your practice the easier it'll be to do it but you know that's that's the non-secret secret sauce of all of this it's just repetition and doing it endlessly and doing it consistently and then all of a sudden you start to get better and that's with any exercise that's with any uh skill that's with anything you know, yeah. and, and most of the things that we can do competently right now came from, rep- especially reading, it came from repetition. It was a 10-year program. Yeah. You know, you had to learn the, the alphabet and the sounds of the alphabet, the two-letter words, three-letter words, four-letter We worked our way up to reading novels, yeah. you know, and it was a 10-year journey that somebody else laid out for us. And it was there, you know, the adults kept us accountable and kept us practicing. If we can do it, we can do that with anything. Yeah. You know, you've challenged a lot of conventional thought and practice in your experience, right? You've sort of rewritten things, helped establish new boundaries. Now, how do you respond or feel, for that matter, as new artists and creators challenge or break some of the maybe conventional artistic bars that that in some ways you've helped establish? I mean... (laughs) If you're not growing, you're not living. So I feel like, you know, the the, the endless scrutiny is, is essential. And, yeah. you know, the farthest I can go is acknowledging I have blind spots, let alone knowing what they are. So, you know, that's, that's, that's all you want. You don't want, you know, I, obviously I'm creating stuff that I want to maintain a level of relevance, you know, for a hundred years. I want my books to outlive me. But yeah, 1000%, like my life is over if I can't get proven wrong. You know, that's, that's what learning is. You know, it's like, I never looked at it that way. I never thought about it that way. That's what learning is. And I'm a lifelong learner. I want to learn forever. I want to look back. You know, I look back at myself 10 years ago and, and, and see a lovable idiot. And I want to look back 10 years from now and see a lovable idiot. Does that bring you a lot of optimism to know that there's... I mean, I don't see it as much as you're talking about, so I don't have the optimism. <laughs> I haven't I haven't come across too many people doing that. I think maybe I've come across a handful of people who have a, a hustle in the social media space that I sure. think is amazing with a level of self-awareness. At such a, I just spoke to a, a little online comedian who is like 25, and, and the things that she realizes and, and she talks about are... are amazing and i was trying to speak with her to give her these gems to avoid certain you know yeah roadblocks and i was like oh she already gets it and as they should you know what i mean like every generation should be picking up this stuff smarter and you know i I, you know self-awareness is is becoming more prevalent and people picking up on their patterns is becoming more prevalent but even from like a straight three-dimensional business perspective a lot of these young creators that i'm meeting are a lot they're a lot more aware of the pitfalls. So from that standpoint, it's very impressive. I mean, in terms of content and ideas and stuff like that, 
from a South Asian perspective, I haven't seen too much of it. I wish I did. And then also just somebody who is fortunate enough to be in the industry. I, I, I can see behind the scenes and some of the, some of the most celebrated individuals, you know, are struggling immensely. Yeah. And if, if that goes unaddressed, they're going to most likely implode. You know, I, I started my journey much later. I was 29 when I left my job. And when great things and amazing things happened, I still felt overwhelmed. But I did think to myself, like, shit, if I was 19, right? What would have, I would have crashed and burned. So I, I see that. I see that now. And I'm also the guy who has an inbox full of people messaging about how much they're struggling and then you look at their profile pictures and it's just all happiness sunshine and rainbows right so i think i'm a little bit more aware of that but um definitely i mean so i mean in terms of concepts and depth i haven't seen too much of that but definitely in terms of hustle i see people having a better understanding of what the hustle is not simply thinking making a little bit of money in half a year means they'll be famous forever i see that and also not falling for people trying to exploit them for their talents or, or the fact that they're white hot in the moment. It's, it's unfortunate in this, especially in social media, because the algorithm is, is definitely encouraging people to identify trends more than set them. Yeah. And I think from that standpoint, it's very challenging to see creativity other than encourage creativity and uniqueness. So I'm not, I haven't found too many people that are doing very, very, very creative things that excite me, but hopefully we'll get there. Hopefully we will, and and hopefully people are, I think, understanding and learning and appreciating and um, exploring your work to provide more guide wires for themselves. Humble, thank you so much for, for joining us. What a treat. I hope we'll get a chance to do it again in the future. Thank you so much for having me, for sure. So please check out Humble's latest book, How to Be Loved, available everywhere. So that's a wrap for the year, and I hope you've enjoyed this all as much as I have. And I can't wait to share more conversations with you in 2023 on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnigar.